Welcome to the Anchored Hope Podcast. We're so glad that you decided to join us today. Today's series, The Not Commandments, Part 3, Sin Not, featuring Michael Davis. Well, we are in Part 3 of our series called The End Commandments. And just to catch you up, uh, this is what happened. Jesus came to the earth. And he introduced a new covenant, a new command. He unhitched it from the old. And his new command was very simple. It was very easy to remember, but it was probably the most you know, unrealistic expectation that anybody had ever put on anybody. And that was to love each other as Christ had loved us. And nobody really understood what that meant. Everybody kind of thought like, oh, okay, that was a little bit pie in the sky. And, you know, they had a somewhat visual of what that looked like. But when they saw Jesus die on the cross for their sins, when they saw Jesus take that burden on, they knew exactly what that looked like. They knew exactly what they meant. They saw the unfairness that Jesus went through. They saw the the punishment that Jesus went through. And when they saw him take that on and die on, on the cross, they understood for the first time in their lives what real love looked like. But that wasn't enough. I mean, there have been many people who have come through and, and had brilliant philosophies and brilliant teachings. And if Jesus had just died on the cross, people would have thought of him like Socrates or Plato, somebody who had a really cool philosophy in life. But what made them put their faith in Jesus Christ, what made them followers of Jesus Christ, was when they saw him alive three days later. When they heard him predict his own death and resurrection, and then he turned out to be right, well, that's somebody that you just don't get inspired by. That's not somebody that you just read about in a book. That's somebody that you you put your faith into, that you believe, that you follow. And that's exactly what the disciples did. And they went out and they started to tell people about it. And other people, the story was so unbelievable and so crazy that they also began to put their faith in Jesus Christ and follow him. But then the big question was, is what do we do next? Where do we go from here? Remember, there is no Bible yet, right? Paul, who wrote most of your New Testament letters, he's not even a Christian yet. The apostles, they wouldn't write down this stuff for 10, 20, some of them 40 years. And then even then it wouldn't be, you know, circulated for a very, very long time. So what did they go off on? The Old Testament, no. The Old Testament only really mattered to the Jews. The Old Covenant and the Torah was Jewish history. So Gentiles, non-Jews, they didn't have any interest in reading the Old Testament, nor was it even required. So what did they have to go off of? Well, all they had were a few years, about three years of stories of times they had spent with Jesus and lessons that Jesus had given And things they had seen Jesus do. And so that's when they decided to start telling those stories and telling those lessons. And that's when they thought, you know, we really ought to write this down. It would be really really beneficial before we die to start putting these things on pen and paper. And so that's what they did. And one of the things that they reiterated to people, the stories that they told, were these not commandments. The not commandments that Jesus gave. The things that Jesus said not to do. And that's exactly what we're doing in this series. We're looking at the not commandments or the things that Jesus told us not to do. 
And we've been going over these, and last week we talked about fear not, but we're also going to talk about in the series doubt not, worry not, and these, the, these commands seem so unrealistic. Even today, if you walk in here, you're probably thinking like, yeah, fear not, yeah, right, worry not, doubt not. Even today, is it so unrealistic, you're going to go, yeah, that's, that's really wishful thinking, very pie in the sky of you, but I don't ever think I'm going to get there personally. But here's the thing, neither did the disciples. Neither did the apostles. They, they were afraid more than once, trust me. But the thing is, is that when they saw Jesus alive, when they saw Jesus resurrected, they believed anything was possible. They thought to themselves, man, I mean, if he can conquer death, if he can die and then come back three days later, then anything is possible. And so today we're, we're going to get into our, our second not commandment, but I told you there were two mystery not commandments, two, two that I wasn't really going to tell you about, because these, these two, these two mystery ones are more pie in the sky than the other three. I mean, these are ones that if I would have publicized this this week and said, this is what this week's message is about, you would have said, yeah, no, not going this week. I think I'll stay home. I think I'll watch on the live feed, because I mean, this one seems very unrealistic. And so before we, we, I tell you what it is, I'm going to tell you the story from which this not commandment came from. And it's a story that if you grew up in church, or, or maybe even possibly not, you, you might have even heard this story. As soon as I get into it, you're going to know exactly where I'm going. But I'm going to tell the story maybe possibly different than, than any other way you've, you've ever heard it, which sounds very egotistical of me, but I think so, okay? But I'm going to tell it in a way, I'm going to set it up, because you've got to understand the context of this story. You've You've got to understand exactly how it happened and where it happened because the amount of drama in this story is huge. I mean, there was a tension that was built in this moment that was so important and so life-changing that I believe that that's why the disciples decided that this part had to be told. This had to be written down. And so I'm going to set it up for you a little bit, but first I've got to tell you exactly where this not commandment takes place. This, commandment take, uh, this command takes place at the Temple Mount. And I'm going to show you a picture of it. This is what it looks like today in, in modern day. And so what you have here is you have in the center here, this is where the temple was. And today, this is a highly contested place between Muslims and Jews, and it's very segregated. But it, it, this is where they believe the original temple was held. And in here in the middle is where you would have the temple, and this is where they kept all of the goods, Okay? This is where they kept all of the artifacts. In there is where they had the Holy of Holies. If you remember what the Holy of Holies is, it was a room where they believed that the presence of God was where it was at. And only the holiest people, only the priests could enter into that room. This is also where they kept all the awesome artifacts. So this is where they kept the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant. This is where everything was stored and kept. And then on the outside were courts, layers of courts, courts on courts. And in these courts, there was the, uh, the, the, the courts of the priest, where only the priests could enter. There was the courts of the altar. The courts of the altar is where when you brought your sacrifice, remember in the Old Covenant, Old Testament system, you gave a sacrifice to God. So this is where all the animals were butchered and laid on the altar. And so there was the court of the altar, and then there was the court, court of women. 
And so there were all of these different courts where only certain people, you had to enter a gate in order to enter that court. And right down here on this southern spot right here, what you'll see, this is now a mosque. But right here, you'll find what's called the southern steps. I'm going to show you kind of a, a, a viewed up picture of that. So these are the southern steps. There's these huge, big steps, about 240 feet wide. And these steps are not like your average steps. These steps are like your box steps, okay? These are like 20-inch steps that you have to step on. And so they're huge, and they're high. And then you would enter this gate. And when you entered this first gate, you were in the very first most open court. And so what they knew these steps to be is like this was their stairway to heaven, okay? This, these were their steps to atonement. Every day when people came to the temple to make their sacrifice, to be pardoned for their sin, to be forgiven, to lay their sacrifice on the altar, they climbed these huge steps. And it was almost like this tradition, part of the experience, that when you stepped on these steps, you would have your animal or your calf on your back. And as you took these gigantic steps, you would think about your sin and you would think about your guilt as you were making your way to be atoned for your sin. And then, after you made your sacrifice, then as you walked down, it was like your steps to freedom. You had been forgiven. You had been atoned for your sins. And God had forgiven you. So, to set all that up, and just to give you some context of where that happened, that's, that's where things take place. And then we get into the story, where Jesus one day heads up to the temple, as he did most days, to go into the court and to teach and to preach. And so we're going to get into the story. It's told by John, John the Apostle. He was there, and he wrote this down at a very old age. And then we have this as one of our you know, first few Gospels in your New Testament Bible. And so John, he saw this, and he wrote it down. And this is what he tells us in John. John says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. He's talking about Jesus. And this is so very important. This is first thing in the morning. Jesus goes to the temple, and he's there to show up. Where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So remember, everywhere Jesus goes, there's a crowd. Everybody loves to follow Jesus. So it was a very routine thing that Jesus would go up to the temple courts. And at that time, in the first temple court, there were, there were a lot of trees. There was some shade. It was a big, big, huge open area. I mean, the whole place is about 30 acres big. So Jesus would go up those steps, go, into, go through the first gate into the court, and would find a shady spot, and he would just begin teaching. And every single morning, people were there because Jesus was going to be there, and he loved his teachings. And this is at the, the, the peak of his popularity, and so people are following him and coming after him. And then, this is what happens next. Goes on, it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. So these are the scribes and the Pharisees, the people that kind of run the temple courts and run the temple system and their old covenant. They have the law, right? The, the commandments that God gave Moses, the 613 commands of the law, they keep it, they teach it, and they use it. And so these teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. Now, here's an interesting question. If you've heard this story before, maybe you didn't think about this. This happened first thing in the morning. First question I have is, where were these people all night? I mean, unless they caught somebody at 5 a.m. doing something, I don't think, you know? You know what this tells me? And really, we can understand this from the context of the rest of the story. This was a trap that was planned for quite some time. And these Pharisees, they caught this woman in adultery, and then they captured her. And they kept her prisoner. 
And they knew where Jesus was going to be. And they knew that there was going to be a crowd. And they knew that it would be in the temple courts. And so they captured this woman. They kept her prisoner. And knowing that Jesus would be there first thing in the morning, first thing in the morning, they grabbed the girl. They dragged her down through the city in front of everybody. They dragged her up those steps. And they entered this huge open court. First thing in the morning, and it's probably very quiet. You could probably hear the butchering of animals on the other side of the place in the court. And Jesus is there underneath the tree, big crowd, and they come and they bring this woman and they throw her in front of the crowd. Then it says next, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Meaning adultery, like as it says in Exodus, part of the Big Ten, right? The, the, the act of committing adultery. Go ahead and throw that verse up there. In Exodus, we know this, right? The Ten Commandments, it tells us, you shall not commit adultery. Oh my goodness. All right, so remember, there's, there's 613 laws in the Old Covenant. 613 commands that you have to keep. And we all know this one, right? Because it's part of the Big Ten, even though the Big Ten is so important to us, most of you can't even tell me what the Big Ten are, right? But you remember this one. I mean, if you go up to somebody and you're like, what are the Ten Commandments? You're like, uh, don't, don't lie and don't commit adultery and then something about your parents, right? I mean, this is like, this is not just part of the Big Ten. This is like top five, right? I mean, everybody who's ever heard anything knows at least like this commandment. Do not commit adultery. So, I mean, they, they got a good one here. They set a good trap. They caught this woman in the act of adultery. This is huge. And everybody knows what happens when you're caught in this act, right? The law, the old covenant law, it says that something's supposed to happen. That she's supposed to be put to death. And they go on and this is what they say. They say, in the law. Now this is very important, right? In the law. They're setting a context here, and they have set up such a good trap on Jesus. They're saying, in the law, and remember, Jesus, remember, be careful what you say, because the law is right around the corner in that building over there, in the Holy of Holies, in the center of the court. It's literally in there. If we needed to, we could take you in there, and we can show it to you, and we can read it to you. So remember where you are. You're, you're in the middle, you're in the epicenter of our religion. So be very careful, because if you go up against the law, if you go up against Moses, if you go up against the temple, oh man, then you've, you've, you're, you think you're a pretty big boy. So be very, very careful what you say, Jesus, because in the law, this is what it says. And they go on, it says, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Jesus, here's what the law tells us. This woman who was caught in adultery should be stoned to death. The courts, the holy ground that you stand on right now, say, the God of heaven says, this woman should be stoned to death. So, are you going to go against the law? Are you going to go up against the commandments that God gave Moses, that Moses gave up? What are you going to do, Jesus? That was a very interesting predicament. They set a pretty good trap, didn't they? And everybody's listening, and everybody's waiting, and everybody's watching to see exactly what Jesus is going to say. Now, Jesus, he could have done a lot in this. It's very interesting to watch Jesus' reaction. Because if it was me, 
This is what I would have reminded them. I would have reminded them what the law actually says. You know, the book of Leviticus actually outlines exactly how this is supposed to happen. In Leviticus, it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are supposed to be put to death. Hey, here's a question you may never ask. Where's the guy? Where's the dude? Right? I mean, the guy who was also part of this act, he's nowhere to be found. I mean, this was so hypocritical. This was so judgmental. This was, this was so wrong of them to do. Where is the man? You ever stop and think about that? Where is the man who's a part of this? And this is, this is again, why it's so important, right? Because I always get questions on this when I teach this stuff, when I especially teach the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant, and I talk about why, you know, the old is become obsolete, and those aren't my words, those are the words of Paul, have become obsolete to Jesus' teachings, and people always message me and email me, and I understand it, you know, but don't you think we still need the ten, don't you think the ten commandments are still important? Don't you think we still need that? No, we don't. Because here's the thing you have to uh, understand. If you're going to take the commandments of the old, every commandment of the old has punishments and conditions attached to them. And if you're going to adopt or teach anything that is old, you can't pick and choose what you want to use. You have to also adopt and follow the punishments and things that are attached to that command. And this is a perfect example. Yeah, I get it. We all believe that committing adultery is wrong. But as clear as day, the law states that if somebody is caught in adultery, the man and the woman should be put to death. Do you believe we should do that today? No. I hope not. You didn't really respond. Jeez. (laughs) But that's what it states, right? And see, and here's the thing is that so many times that's what people have a problem with when it comes to Christianity. Is there so many Christians today who still hang their hat on the Old Testament, on the Big Ten, on the Ten Commandments? But the thing is, is if you're going to hang your hat on it, you're hanging your hat on all of it. And that's why people have such a problem with Christianity. is because there's so many things like this in the Old Testament that are wrong today. That should not be upheld today. That should not happen. And people look at that and go, really? Is that what you guys are about? And the truth is, is it's not what we should about. We do not, as Christians, hang our hat on anything that is in the Old Testament. We hang our hat on Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus came to give us is better. So if somebody tells you, well, I would be a Christian, but I've got some problems with the things, some of those things that God told, let them happen in the Old Testament, you should look at them and go, me too. And that's why I'm a follower of Jesus, not a Jew. Because the Jewish Torah, the laws that God gave Moses, there was some messed up stuff that happened. And the, the Torah was used, the Old Covenant was used by the Pharisees in a sinful way. What we have here is a classic example of what we even see done today in so many churches with so many pastors. What we have is sacred men with, in a sacred place with a sacred text using it to manipulate sacred followers. And that's exactly what these Pharisees had done. They let that man go out free. But they took this woman and they used her as a pawn in order to try to publicly embarrass Jesus. And so they put this woman in front of Jesus. And they say, this is what the law says. Be very, very, very careful how you answer this, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't answer how I would answer. Jesus instead does something different. 
And John knew that this was a trap. John says, as he reflects on it, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They wanted to undermine him. They wanted to destroy his ministry. And so what we have here is this very, very, very intense moment where it's Jesus versus Moses, and it's Jesus versus the temple, and it's Jesus versus the old sacrificial system. We have Jesus against these things, and they're asking, Jesus, are you really bigger than all of this? Are you really bigger than the Bible? Are you bigger than the temple? Are you bigger than Moses? Man, what a moment. This is huge. Is Jesus really saying that he's replacing these things and saying that what he has to say, what he has to give, is better, is bigger, is more important, that comes as a priority? So in this moment, there's a ton of tension, and you probably could have actually heard a pen drop in this moment. Everybody's waiting to see, what is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to say? And this woman is there in the middle of everybody, still weeping, still crying, still feeling that guilt for what has happened. And she knows what's coming. She knows what's on its way. Then it says next, John says, but Jesus bit down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So Jesus doesn't say anything yet. Instead, he kneels down on one knee, and he takes his finger, and he begins to write something on the ground. You, you just imagine for a minute. There's tons of people waiting to hear from him. And they see him writing down. You know that a lot of people bent down or started to gather around, started to whisper, what's he doing? What's he writing? What's, he, what's, he, what's, he, what's on the ground? What's he doing? And again, if you don't think about these things the way I think about these things, this is such a huge, huge moment. Because remember the context of this, we're talking about the law, the Old Testament Bible, the temple against Jesus. And if you, if you know anything about Jewish history in the Old Covenant, they literally believed that the Ten Commandments, that they were written with God's finger. That when the tablets were given to Moses, that it was God's finger that wrote down the laws and the commands that they would follow. So in this moment, here's what's so cool. What we have is Jesus' finger against God's finger. Jesus is going to write down on the ground and replace what God wrote with his finger. He is literally taking his finger and rewriting what people should do in a moment like this. This is huge. This is a moment in time, a moment in history. It is Jesus' finger against God's finger. And Jesus is rewriting in the ground what they need to do. So Jesus, he writes what he writes on the ground. And it says next, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead. Tell you what. You can kill her. You can stone her. But here's the condition. Only if you are without sin. Jesus changed the context in that very moment. At that very moment, everybody who had a stone in their hand, who was ready to kill her, who was ready to penalize her for her sin, all of a sudden reflected on their own sin. 
All of a sudden, Jesus turned the table and said, you know what? Whomever of you who's without sin, you can do it. And every single one of them thought back to all the times that they had climbed those temple steps. How many times they had gone through those courts. And how many times they had gone around the corner to the court of altars. And they laid down their sacrifice and had to go into the temple and be atoned for their sins. And every single man, every single man was reminded all of a sudden of how many times they had screwed up and how many times they had traveled with that guilt, with the secrets, with the things that had gone on in the dark places that nobody else knew about it. And all of a sudden they were reminded that they themselves had sinned so many other times. And all of a sudden it says next, It says again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. So as everybody is thinking about this, as everybody is thinking about their own sin and everything that they had been through, Jesus, he stoops down and he begins to write again. Now this has been highly contested for years by theologians and people. Like, what in the world? We know what Jesus wrote down the first time, but what did he write down the second time? Everybody kind of debates and argues about what in the world it could possibly be. What in the world did he write down in that sand? And I want you to know, our staff, we've done extensive research about what this is. And we actually know what Jesus wrote down on the ground. What he wrote down is, is he stooped down and he said, this is the way. I'm just kidding. Good. I'm just, I'm just making sure you're awake, all right? No, we don't know what Jesus said. But he stoops down and he writes again. But he could have written a lot of things. He could have wrote, this is the way. He could have wrote, takes one to know one. He could have wrote down, gotcha. <laughs> could have wrote down, burn, you know. He could have wrote down a lot of things. But in that moment, all of these different men are thinking about their own sin. And it says next, John goes on, at this point, those who, had, who, who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Why did the older ones leave first? Because they had made the most trips. The older ones with the most experience who had done this since they were children, who had made hundreds of trips to the altar to be atoned, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Because they had probably sinned more than any of them accumulatively in their life. And so the oldest ones left first. And one by one they began to leave. Generation by generation by generation. The oldest ones first. And then the middle aged. And then the young men. They all began to leave. And it says until only Jesus was left. And what's so interesting about this story is the only one who is left was the one that was among them without sin. And he is the one who didn't have a stone in his hand. So one by one, they leave with the woman still standing there. Now just picture this for a moment. Picture this. Put put yourself in the shoes of this woman. You were caught in adultery. You were kept captive overnight, probably in chains, tied up. You were drugged against your will down the streets in front of everybody, upstairs, probably bruised, battered, dirty, hungry, sick. You were thrown in front of a crowd of people. And they began to accuse you and spit at you and point their finger at you and yell angry words at you and make you feel awful and sick about yourself. 
And you know what's coming. You know that death is your penalty. That you're in front of Jesus and you're in the temple courts and you're in the Holy of Holies. And this is going to be it. And you hear what Jesus says and nobody says a thing. And it gets very, very quiet. And you just have your eyes closed and you're weeping and you're wailing. And you're just thinking at any moment a stone is going to come hurling towards your face. And you hear footsteps. You hear footsteps and you believe maybe they're going to grab a rock. Maybe they're going to grab a stone. Maybe it's going to begin. And then you hear more footsteps and more footsteps and more footsteps. And you're in this huge court until suddenly silence. And you feel somebody is standing in front of you. Somebody is in front of you and you think maybe this is where it comes. Maybe this is where it happens. And you open your eyes and it's Jesus standing in front of you. And Jesus says to her, he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Where did they go? Everyone's left. All of a sudden, this huge court that, remember, is full every single day. It looks like a mall, a huge open area. That's busy, that's full, and Jesus has suddenly made everyone leave. And you're in this huge open area, it's dead silent, and it's just you, and it's Jesus. And he says, where did they go? Has no one condemned you? And the woman, she says to Jesus, she says, no one, sir. No one condemns me. No one is here. And Jesus, he replies to her, then neither do I condemn you. Then neither do I condemn you. You know what Jesus was saying in that moment? Jesus was saying not that she hadn't done something wrong. She had done something wrong. Jesus' question was, who is going to make you pay for your sin? And the answer was no one. No one was going to make her pay for what she had done. And in that moment, Jesus announced to the world, which is why John had to write this down. It was so very important. Jesus announced to the world that he was greater than Moses. He was greater than the temple. He was greater than the old covenant. And yes, he was even greater than the Ten Commandments. And that he had come to replace that system. He had come to give something better. And what we would all learn, what this woman would learn, what the disciples would learn, is that Jesus did not come to make people pay for their sins because he would get on the cross and pay for them himself. And Jesus says, then neither do I. And then he gives the end commandment. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. So today's not commandment is sin not. Sin not. And what you have to understand is that this is the tone that Jesus had towards sinners, to those that were caught in sin. And it may not be the tone that you heard growing up. If you grew up in church, this is probably not the tone 
or the sermon or the message that you heard. It's probably not the tone you heard from your parents. It's probably not the tone you heard from your Christian friend. It's probably not the tone that you see on the television because the tone that you see is much harsher than this, right? The tone and the finger that was pointed at you when you were young, when you were told not to sin, was much harsher and much more judgmental, much meaner, almost angry in the same way that that mob was angry at that woman. But here's what we need to understand, and this is what we have to take away, is about Jesus' tone, is that Jesus' tone was that he was not condemning. It was compassionate. Jesus didn't want her to sin. Jesus wasn't okay with sin. But when he approached sinners, he was compassionate towards sinners, not condemning. He urged her not to sin, not condemned her not to sin. He urged her. He said, I want to urge you. I really think it would be best for you to leave your life of sin because Jesus knew what we know. If you live a life of sin, and if you live in sin, you already know this. And Jesus knew it himself. His, he knew this. It was that sin comes prepackaged with penalty. Sin is damaging to, your, to our lives, right? The thing that Jesus knew is that, look, I don't need to punish you. Because sin comes prepackaged with penalty. Anybody who lives in sin knows, knows this if they live in it long enough, is that sin kills. Sin is going to kill something. If you live in sin, nobody needs to punish you. God doesn't need to put a punishment on you because sin is a natural killer, and it's going to kill something. Sin kills your conscience. There are things, when we live in sin, there are things that we were not okay with. Things that we used to wince at. Things we used to go, that's not funny. That's not appropriate. That's not right. That's not okay to laugh at. But if we sin long enough, it kills our conscience and we become dumb to things. And we think things are okay that years ago we wouldn't have thought were okay. But when we sin long enough, it kills our conscience. It kills our mind. It kills our health. It kills our relationship. Sin can uh, kill a relationship in a marriage. Sin can kill a relationship with a friend. Sin can kill a relationship with your parents. Sin comes pre-packaged with its own penalty. And eventually, sin is going to win. Sin is going to kill something in your life. And so Jesus, he comes to this woman and he comes to us and he goes, Look, I'm not here to condemn you because I know you're already living in hell. Because I know what's going on inside of you. I know the insecurity you have. I know the amount of self-respect you've lost. I know the guilt that you feel. I don't need to punish you because you punish yourself every day for the mistakes that you've made. Because that's what sin does. And so he comes to this woman and he urges her, leave your life of sin. And the thing is, is that we understand is that the temple model message, see the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, why we've left it, is that the temple model's message was when you sin, you break God's law. And if you break God's law, God's going to get you. But what Jesus came to give us is this is that Jesus' message was when you sin, you break God's heart because God knows sin will eventually break you. See, Jesus urges us, sin not. Go and do not sin. Not because if you do, I'm going to get you. 
No, I love you. I want you to choose not to sin because I love you. And it breaks my heart to watch you break. It breaks my heart to see your marriage fail. It breaks my heart to see what you're doing to your body. It breaks my heart to see this internal struggle you have in yourself where you can't even look yourself in the mirror and be proud. It breaks my heart. So please, I'm urging you, I'm asking you because I love you. Sin not. See, here's the thing. What would happen, just a walk from the, where they were at the time and those, at that moment at the temple, is that Jesus would prove just how much God loved us. When he, who is not asking for anyone to pay for their sins, decided to pay for them himself, and he would go on that cross he would die for our sin. And here's the thing. You, you, may not, you may struggle with this or you may not know if God really does love you. But, but here's the thing. Is that when someone is willing to give their life for you, you don't have to ask where you stand with them. And that's what Jesus did for you. And Jesus did for me. And Jesus did for the woman who had committed adultery. And not only just the woman who had committed adultery, but the man who wasn't even there, who don't even know who Jesus is. Jesus died for him too. Because Jesus even loved that man as well. Sin not. Not because God will get you, but because sin will kill you. So let me ask you a question. What's your sin? What is your sin? Sin not. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, I know what you're already thinking. Many of you adults in the room, what you're thinking is, is, yeah, well, not that easy. And this is such an important lesson, especially for our young people. Teenagers, 20-year-olds, I want you to listen to me real quick, all right? I want you to look up here because this is gold for you, okay? All the adults in this room who are thinking that right now, who are thinking, it's not that easy. I can't just stop. Here's what they're saying. You know what they're saying? And this is a, every 30-year-old or above in this room is going to say amen once I put this up on the screen. It's that this is that it's far easier to get entangled than untangled. Yeah. Teenagers, young people, listen to me. It is so easy to get entangled and it is so much harder to get untangled. It is so easy to get entangled in sex, and it is so hard to get untangled with it. In porn, in adultery, it is so easy to get entangled in drugs and alcohol. It is so hard to get untangled with it. It is so easy to get entangled with debt, and it is so hard to get untangled with it. Jesus urges all of us and every single person who has lived a life long enough to know would tell all of you young people, get untangled as quickly as you can because it is so hard to do it. And the longer you do it, the more tangled up it gets. So I would urge you to leave 
your life of sin. And for you adults who are thinking, I'm really tangled up, Pastor. I want to let you know this is where being a part of a church comes in. Is that you don't have to do it by yourself. Is that this is a church of tangled up people who want to help you untangle. This is why you need friends and relationships with other people who have put their faith in Christ. Who are trying to get it untangled as well. Who are trying to have successful marriages. Who are trying to get untangled from debt. Who are trying to get untangled or stay untangled from drugs and alcohol. This is the place you need to be. You're in the right place and you're with the right people. But you've got to work on building those relationships with people around you. So you can have that in support to not get entangled or to get untangled yourself. Leave your life of sin. If you ever go to the southern stairs, if you ever go back there, the picture that I showed you, I want to I put it back on the screen. If you ever go to the southern steps, you'll notice that the gate, you'll see these three gates here. The gates are stoned up. You can't go in there anymore. There's nowhere to go. And the reason that you can't climb those southern steps anymore and you can't enter that court is because you don't need to anymore. It's because when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, there was no more need to go to the temple and be atoned. There were no more debts that needed to be paid or no more sacrifices that needed to be laid down. It's done. And Christ did that for you. And today... For you to leave your life of sin, you don't have to come down to any altar. You don't have to pay any fine or penance. You don't need to walk into a booth with me and tell me about it. Who am I? And who do the people who do that think they are? All you have to do is leave it and follow Jesus and put your faith in him. All you have to do is belief that God so loved you that he sent his one and only son and that whoever shall believe in him will have eternal life. Leave your life of sin. It's possible. It's possible because Jesus died and he rose again. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, Every single one of us knows where this message ends. And God, there have been so many times in our lives and in our experience where we've been yelled at by a preacher. We've been yelled at by a pastor. We've been yelled at by the man on the TV to quit being a sinner. It's not simply that easy. And it's made us feel dirty. It's made us feel condemned. It's made us feel judged. made us feel like we weren't good enough and that we weren't loved. But God, today, as we look at the story of Jesus, we understand that today there is no one who is condemning us. That today, God, you are urging us. You're asking us, encouraging us to leave our life of sin. God, you're here to let us know that we don't have to do this alone that you love us, 
that you've already proven exactly where you stand with us. So God, you know how entangled we are right now. Father, I pray that we would hear your voice this morning. Leave your life of sin. That we would be sincere followers of Jesus. That, God, we would believe and put our faith in you. And, God, we understand that you have invited us this morning to leave what is killing us, what is poisoning our relationships, poisoning our career, poisoning our health, poisoning our bank account. God, we understand and we realize that we have become entangled in something that is not good. So God, will you help us to become untangled? Will you help us to go and leave our life of sin? Would we follow you? God, we know it's not going to be easy. We know we're going to have to continue to learn about your not commandments and learn and live like you. We know we're going to have to learn to, to love like you and forgive like you and have mercy like you and have grace like you. But God, I believe with all my heart that if we would leave our life of sin and follow you, that this world could become what we want it to become. Our country could become what we want it to become. That when we love our neighbor in the same way that you have loved us, then it creates a beautiful picture of, of what heaven is like. So God, would your kingdom come to this earth and would we love one another the same way that we're going to love one another in eternity with you, God? God, this morning we give you our life and we follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you would like to support Anchored Hope, you can make a donation at anchoredhope.church forward slash give. To connect with someone from Anchored Hope, please go to anchoredhope.church forward slash high. Thank you for listening and God bless.